Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Is the law applied equally across the political spectrum? Getting to the heart of the GOP's probe into the Department of Justice today. How Attorney General Merrick Garland responded to senators. In closing arguments today, the prosecution said Alec Murdoch was a liar looking for sympathy. The defense will make its final arguments tomorrow. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot loses her re-election bid. Two other Democrats are advancing to the runoff election in April. The governor of Ohio visits the train derailment site in East Palestine. This comes as scientists say tests are showing unusually high levels of chemicals in the air. And a new nonprofit program says it provides local municipalities with funding so they can get necessary resources to administer fair and accurate elections. Critics say it's illegal. Is the D Justice Department applying the law equally? Republican senators grilled Attorney General Merrick Garland today. How did he respond? NTD's Melina Weiskopf has more from Capitol Hill. DOJ Attorney General Merrick Garland appearing for the first time during this Congress before the Senate Judiciary Committee, GOP critics accusing Garland of not applying the law equally. Merrick Garland sadly has been the most political attorney general we've ever had. He's used the Department of Justice and the FBI as a weapon. And right after telling me this, Senator Cruz launched a heated exchange with Garland over what appears to be the DOJ's lack of prosecuting people for protesting outside of Supreme Court justices' homes who were opposing the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Here's a look at that exchange. Say no. The answer's no. You know it's no. I know it's no. Everyone in this, in this hearing room knows it's no. You're not willing to answer a question. Have you brought a case under this statute? Yes or no? As far as I know, we haven't. And what we have done is defended the lies of the justice. So how do, you decide, US marshals. how do you decide which criminal statutes the, the DOJ enforces and which one it doesn't? And the Republicans pointed to a law which states that anyone who tries to influence justices' decisions should be prosecuted. And on this topic, Garland repeatedly responded that the G DOJ has to prioritize prosecuting violence. At one point, Garland gave senators updates on their investigation into the January 6th Capitol breach, a point that Senator Cotton seized on to make his point. Related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol, we are disrupting, investigating, and prosecuting violence and threats of violence. You've dedicated millions of man hours to study videotape, to do forensic analysis of computers and devices, to go knock and conduct interviews. You, you can't allocate just a few agents to look at people's social media accounts and say they were president outside of a justice home. And with many Republicans accusing the DOJ of acting with political bias, I asked Democrat Senator John Ossoff if he feels that these Republican accusations are warranted. Here's what he said. Do you think it's valid, their argument, or do you think they're just doing this for political purposes? Look, I think every, every senator um, has an obligation to their state and to their constituents to raise matters of concern, matters of principle. And Republican senators also honed in on what they characterize as the DOJ's efforts to target parents who speak up at school board meetings. This comes as over here on the House side, Speaker McCarthy just unveiled the Parents' Bill of Rights. The right to know what's being taught in the school and for you to be able to see uh, the reading materials, right? 
And the Republican-led House will take this bill up where it is expected to easily pass. However, it will face obstacles in the Democrat-controlled Senate. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And staying on Capitol Hill, the Senate passed a resolution today to overturn a Biden administration retirement investment rule. The rule would allow retirement plan managers to invest based on ESG considerations. ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. The retirement funds in question collectively invest $12 trillion on behalf of over 150 Americans, 150 million Americans. The funds are supposed to be placed in investments that bring the highest return possible. But critics say the Labor Department's rule would change that, allowing investors to prioritize the ESG agenda over profit. Supporters of the rule argue that it's not a mandate, that it allows but does not require the consideration of ESG factors. The resolution to overturn the ESG rule was authored by Republican Senator Mike Braun. It passed on a vote of 50 to 46, with Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and John Tester voting with Republicans. It was already passed by the House yesterday and will now head to President Biden's desk. The administration, however, has issued a veto threat. And amid mounting questions over the origins of COVID, Congress springs into action to broaden its investigation. And the lab leak theory again gains steam as the FBI speaks out. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Speculation is soaring after FBI Director Christopher Wray doubled down on a reported assessment by saying that the FBI believes the origin of COVID are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. So here you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government-controlled lab that killed millions of Americans. The Tuesday interview follows a report by the Wall Street Journal that says the Energy Department has concluded that the COVID-19 pandemic most likely came from a lab leak in Wuhan, China. And Director Ray called out the Chinese Communist Party for obstructing investigations into the COVID origins. That the Chinese government seems to me has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate uh, the work here. And that's unfortunate for everybody. And the White House is getting pressed on the latest revelation from the FBI, but it insists that there still hasn't been a final conclusion. We have seen many, uh, uh, many different uh, uh, conclusions, right, from, uh, from, from the intelligence community. But while the White House highlights the need to find the COVID origin, we need the data. Still notes. Our relationship with China has not changed. Meanwhile, House Republicans are kicking off a series of meetings and hearings to dig into the origin of COVID. That's as Senator Ron Johnson calls for bipartisan efforts. We have Senator Marshall, Senator Paul, myself are very interested, as I think the American public is, uh, in the origin of COVID. There should be nothing partisan about this whatsoever. And lawmakers are calling on federal agencies, including the State Department, the Energy Department, and the FBI, to release more information about investigations into the COVID origins. And the House Select Panel on COVID Response is holding another hearing next week, specifically on COVID origins. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. Jurors heard closing arguments today in the high-profile murder trial of former South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. On June 7, 2021, Alec Murdoch's wife and son were found shot to death at a family property in South Carolina. 
After 19 months of speculation, the disbarred attorney was charged with the crime. The gruesome case has garnered international attention due to the family's legal prominence in the county. Throughout the trial, prosecutors painted the suspect as a serial liar with a drug habit, looking for sympathy. Now, after six weeks of testimony, the prosecution Wednesday laid out an hours-long closing argument. The prosecutor said the former lawyer was experiencing mounting financial pressures just before the murders. And after an exhaustive investigation, there is only one person who had the motive, who had the means, who had the opportunity to commit these crimes, and also whose guilty conduct after these crimes betrays him. The suspect was already facing 100 charges related to other crimes, including money laundering, embezzlement, and tax evasion. The defendant was the one person who was living a lie. The defendant is the person on which a storm was descending. And the defendant is a person where his own storm would actually mean consequences for Maggie and Paul and consequences for those who trusted him. He said after the tragedy, the financial pressures went away. Before jurors heard the prosecutor's closing argument, they visited the crime scene at a family estate. The roughly 1,700-acre property includes the house, fields, forests, and dog kennels, which are near where the bodies were found. If convicted, Murdoch faces 30 years to life in prison. The defendants are set to lay out their arguments on Thursday. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine visited the site of last month's train derailment to check on the removal of hazardous waste. This comes as scientists say tests in East Palestine are showing unusually high levels of chemicals in the air. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine went to the train derailment site in East Palestine on Wednesday to check on the removal of hazardous waste. The whole goal here is to, uh, you know, make this community safe. Although officials have repeatedly claimed the air and the water are safe, some residents have remained skeptical after seeing chemicals in the water. Can't happen overnight. You can't get all this stuff out of here overnight. Uh, but just, you know, looking at what we were looking at here and looking at the stream and, you know, how they're constantly trying to agitate the water, doing the things that they need to do so that you're slowly making that, making that, that better. And the director of the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency, Ann Vogel, added to that. We introduced air we, through sparging to break, to speed up the biological breakdown of the contaminants, but also then the next phase is to actually stir up the sediment under the creek to get the product out of the ground that's under the creek introduce it to the air and again speed up that biological breakdown. Crews were expected to start removing the train tracks as early as Wednesday to clean the hazardous waste underneath the tracks. DeWine's visit to East Palestine comes as scientists from Texas A&M and Carnegie Mellon Universities released their own analysis of the chemicals in East Palestine. The scientists said the EPA's measurements show unusually high levels of chemicals compared to what would normally be found in the area. They added that if the levels of some chemicals remain high, it could be a risk for residents' health in the long run. On the other hand, an EPA spokesperson told CNN on Monday that the chemicals are below levels of concern for short-term exposures, and the EPA said they don't expect the levels of chemicals to remain high for much longer. 
The university scientists who did the analysis are expected to release data from their own test in East Palestine on Tuesday. Also, Alan Shaw, the CEO of the train company Norfolk Southern, is set to testify before the United States Senate on March 9th about the train derailment. Jason Perry, NTD News. And another train accident. A train carrying around 30,000 gallons of propane derailed in Florida's Manatee County. It occurred in an industrial area north of Sarasota Bradenton International Airport on Tuesday. The train consists of five rail cars carrying sheet rock and two propane tankers. The second of the two tankers derailed but managed to stay upright. Officials noted that clearing the tracks may take some time as they have to empty the tanker before they can move it. Reports say roughly 150 feet of track was left mangled. No injuries were reported and no leakage has yet been found. The Tampa Bay Times reports that crews will continue to monitor the situation as cleanup efforts begin, including monitoring the air quality. And the news outlet says the freight train is operated by Florida's Seminole Gulf Railway and was minimally staffed. The exact cause of the derailment is unclear. The fire rescue chief noted that the area may be evacuated when the propane is offloaded due to potential danger. And the mayoral election in Chicago will be heading to a runoff. And incumbent mayor Lori Lightfoot will not be on the ballot. She lost her re-election bid in a landslide yesterday. With roughly 94% of the votes in, the race for Chicago mayor is set to go to a runoff on April 4th. The two candidates advancing to the runoff are Democrats Paul Vallis, who got 34% of the votes, and Brandon Johnson, who got 20%. Democratic Mayor Lori Lightfoot finished in third place with just over 17% of the votes. We were fierce competitors in these last few months, um, but I will be rooting and praying for our next mayor to deliver uh, for the people of the city for years to come. Lightfoot wrote on Twitter, Serving as your mayor has been the honor of a lifetime, and I am so grateful to all of you who have stood beside me these last four years. Lightfoot is the first mayor of Chicago to lose re-election in 40 years. The election came at a time when crime has been soaring in the city. According to the Chicago Police Department's 2022 year-end report, violent crime in the city rose by over 40 percent in the past two years. In 2021, the city recorded the most killings in a quarter century and more than 3,500 shootings. And crime has been a major focus of the election. Vallis branded himself a law and order candidate and promised during his campaign to be tough on crime. He has the backing of the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police. Johnson runs on a more progressive platform and he has the backing of the Chicago Teachers Union. Vallis is the former head of Chicago Public Schools and Johnson is a Cook County Commissioner. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. A nonprofit alliance provides grant money to local municipalities to help with election administration needs. But some critics say it's a continuation of a Mark Zuckerberg-funded project that boosted voter turnout in Democratic counties. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Allegations are swirling after the Center for Tech and Civic Life launched a new program in 2022 called the U.S. Alliance for Election Excellence. It's a five-year, $80 million program that awards funds to counties and municipalities in need of resources to operate fair elections. But some critics say the program is a continuation of the so-called Zuckerbucks grants donated during the 2020 election. The CTCL is a nonprofit that in 2020 provided nearly $350 million to local election offices. 
Most of those funds were donated by Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Attorney Eric Cardall sued the CTCL in 2020 for alleged election fraud in Wisconsin. And so in 2020, the Center for Tech and Civic Life had grant agreements, which in part funded legally unauthorized absentee ballot drop boxes in Madison. And they basically said they're legal, but the Wisconsin Supreme Court said they're illegal. Cardall said using a nonprofit's money for political purposes is illegal. In December 2022, the city of Madison accepted a $500,000 grant from the Alliance program. Madison agreed to use the funds for educating the public about government and democracy in the United States and to working with government agencies to develop the skills, strategies, and tools to engage their citizens. Cardell said the agreement is illegal. 501c3 monies cannot be used by 501c3s for targeted, biased voter education efforts or voter registration drives. Those are viewed as activities that are too political for a 501c3. So these agreements are basically laundering 501c3 money to a city to do the exact same thing the 501c3 can't do. NTD reached out to the CTCL by email and telephone to find out how the Alliance grant funds will be used for election administration efforts. We haven't heard back yet. On the Alliance website, it says election offices will have access to support systems for election administration assistance and that they will provide them with customized resources, coaching and implementation support. So who's funding this program? We refer to it, you know, Zuckerberg 2.0, but I don't have any information that Zuckerberg is actually the funder of this program. According to the Alliance's website, the grants are funded by a group of donors with ties to the Audacious Project, a nonprofit with a goal to find bold solutions to the world's most urgent challenges, such as immigration, climate change, and election administration. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Yet another new poll has come out on who's the most popular Republican candidate for president in 2024. It shows former President Trump leading Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Yahoo News YouGov surveyed over 1,500 U.S. adults from February 23rd to 27th. Trump got 47% of support in the case of a Republican primary. DeSantis received 39%. 13% of those surveyed were undecided. The poll didn't have any other Republican candidates. This time is the first time in three months that Trump has beaten DeSantis in the Yahoo poll. In the last survey conducted mid-February, DeSantis came out on top of Trump by four points. The latest poll also shows that both Trump and DeSantis lead President Biden by two points. Trump officially launched his campaign last November. DeSantis and Biden have not officially announced whether they will run for president. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, dozens of people were killed when a Greek passenger train collided head-on with a freight train. It's the country's deadliest rail crash in living memory. And in Olympic figure skating, a prominent sports lawyer explains how Camilla Valieva's young age is affecting her ongoing doping case. That and more coming up.
tragedy in Greece. At least 38 people were killed when a passenger train collided head-on with a freight train late yesterday. A local train station master has been arrested over the deadliest train crash to hit Greece in living memory. The man is denying any wrongdoing and has attributed the accident to a possible technical failure, according to government and police sources. The passenger train and a cargo train collided head-on on Tuesday night outside the city of Larissa, killing dozens and wounding more. Many of the victims are thought to be university students on their way back from a long holiday weekend. Fire officials say the death toll is expected to rise further. The passenger train was carrying over 350 people and heading to the city of Thessaloniki on the Aegean coast, according to Hellenic train data. The government has declared three days of national mourning with flags at half-mast. Greece's Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis visited the crash site on Wednesday. He's describing it as an unspeakable tragedy, and the government will do everything in its power to make sure it never happens again. Greece's aging railway system is in need of modernizing, and many trains travel on single tracks. Rail signals and automatic control systems still need to be installed in many areas. Now, over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. It's been more than a year since then 15-year-old Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva took the Olympics by storm, becoming the first female to land a quad jump at the Games. Her nearly flawless performance in the team competition propelled Russia to a gold medal win, or so we thought. Within hours, it was revealed that Valieva had tested positive for a banned substance just two months prior. But the Court of Arbitration for Sports, citing her young age, which qualified her as a protected person, ruled she was allowed to continue competing until her eligibility was resolved. A year later, the slow-moving case has finally made some progress as the World Anti-Doping Agency, also known as WADA, appealed a Russian tribunal's ruling that Valieva bore no fault or negligence for the positive test. They instead suggested a four-year retroactive ban. In a strange twist, though, the Russian Anti-Doping Agency, also known as RUSADA, appealed the ruling as well, though they suggested just a reprimand as punishment. And the, the thing that's more strange to me is that uh, the RUSADA appeal suggesting that uh, the penalty could be as little as a warning, uh, which, you know, I guess is technically correct under the rules, but it almost seems like they appealed so that they could... Um, participate in the process. Howard Jacobs is a sports lawyer who has a particular focus on athletes charged with doping and other offenses. Jacobs says in this case, though, he doesn't see the Russian tribunal's ruling of no fault or no negligence holding up. It's unlikely that that will stand at CAS. I think that there is likely to be some period of suspension. Jacobs, who's represented Marion Jones, Maria Sharapova, and others, says what complicates this particular case is Valieva's age. The only thing kind of from a legal perspective that is unusual about the Valieva case is the fact that she's so young and the WADA code has this provision for protected persons that they get treated differently in certain respects. You know, ordinarily you would have to prove where the substance came from 
in order to be able to get anywhere below two years in a case like this. For a protected person, they don't have to show where it came from. Jacob says he ultimately sees a likely suspension coming, though maybe not the four-year length that WADA is suggesting. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has nine games planned, including a Phoenix-Charlotte matchup where former MVP Kevin Durant is expected to make his debut as a member of the Suns. And finally, for you hockey fans, the NHL has six games on tap, featuring the once-struggling Colorado Avalanche, who've now won six straight games, hosting the New Jersey Devils. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.